Well, I want to begin tonight by letting you know that every week as I pray in preparation to preach, part of my prayer that I've adapted from the Valley of Vision includes the following. I pray that God would attend with power the truth preached and that he would awaken your attention. I pray that he would leave you inexcusable in neglecting his mercy. I pray that he would give me freedom to open your sorrows and then to also set before you comforting considerations. I pray that you would be refreshed and melted and and convicted and comforted and blessed. And I want you to know that because I'm going to set up our chapter in Genesis 32 with a few, three, actually significant questions. And here are those questions. What do you believe is your greatest need? The second question is, what do you believe is your greatest weakness? And then finally, what sin confronts you most? So what do you believe is your greatest need? What do you believe is your greatest weakness? And what sin confronts you most? Now I want you to keep those questions and hopefully the answers in the forefront of your mind as we go through our outline tonight. There's only two points. We're going to see Jacob, how Jacob feared Esau and then how he wrestled with God. And as we do, I think what we're going to see is that God used... Jacob's erroneous idea of what he needed. He used his greatest weakness of self-reliance. And he used his sin against Esau. And used them all to bring him to a point that he grabbed a hold of the Lord. And he didn't grab a hold of the Lord to obtain a blessing as had been his pattern. He grabbed a hold of the Lord to receive a blessing. This is a story. This chapter is a story of how God uses the things we struggle with most. And how he is even willing to bring us to the point of desperation. To cling to Christ alone. And to never let him go. And as is our custom, let me pray for us before... Uh, we begin or continue. Father, I ask, as I have been, that you, uh, I ask your spirit to make the reading and the preaching of your word an effectual means of enlightening and convincing and humbling us, of driving us out of ourselves and drawing us to Christ, of conforming us to the image of Christ, to subdue us to his will, and of strengthening us against temptations and corruptions, of building us up in grace, and establishing our hearts in holiness and comfort through faith and salvation. Please, as always, fill me with your spirit, that I might fulfill this task you've called me to. Grant me grace, that I might do something good for you this evening. And I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Alright, so where we left off, the covenant has been ratified and between him and Laban. And he, uh, being Jacob, has Laban in his rearview mirror, finally, after 20 years. 
And he is on his way. And he's headed toward Canaan. As the Lord had directed him to go. And at some point he encounters angels. So just as he did as he was leaving. He now again is reminded that God is with him as he enters. Jacob was being reassured that he had not been left alone. After 20 years, 20 years later, God remained present with him just as he had been with him in Bethel. And when Jacob saw that he wasn't alone, he named the place where he was Mahanaim. And it means two camps. Because he knew that although he could only see one camp physically, there were actually two present. His camp that he saw physically, but also the spiritual camp, God's camp. But that camp was just as real as his. And because the term Mahanaim carried a military connotation to it, it's safe to say he believed the camp was made up of an army of angels who were fighting on his behalf. And brothers and sisters, this is not only a reminder for Jacob, it's also a reminder for us. God is with us. And we are being protected by a heavenly host of angels. Psalm 91 says he will command, or in the words of Psalm 91, he will command his angels concerning us to guard us in all our ways. But that's not all. Jacob was returning to the land to which the promises were attached. So upon his return, the angels were there to greet him as well. And so it was when we all first believed the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and repented of our sins and received the forgiveness that he offers. In the words of Paul, we were greeted by innumerable angels as we were seated in heavenly places with Christ. And in Jesus' words, they all rejoiced. And so it is when we enter this place for worship each and every week and are lifted up to the throne of grace by His Spirit and we're greeted by a multitude of heavenly hosts who gather with us in joyful celebration and in praise and worship of the Lord. And of course, and so it will be when we enter glory on the day of His return. What a glorious day that will be. Joining with the heavenly hosts. Well, as I mentioned last week, at some point in Padan Aram, Jacob's character had begun to change. And we continue to see that change here in chapter 32 as well. And we see it in a couple of ways. First, notice in verses 3 to 5 that Jacob sent messengers to Esau. Um, this meeting was, it was going to happen. Right? It was uh, inevitable. But it wasn't imminent. It really didn't have to happen this, this early. Because in reality, Bethel and Shechem were in the northern part of Canaan. And Seir, where Esau was, was in, shared a southern border with Canaan. So there was a great distance between the two. So what Jacob is doing is deciding to take initiative and to send messengers to him. And he gave them very specific instructions. Look at verse 5. Thus you shall say to my Lord Esau, 
Thus says your servant Jacob, I've sojourned with Laban and stayed until now. I have oxen and donkeys and flocks and male servants and female servants. I've sent uh, to tell the Lord, to tell my Lord in order that I may find favor in your sight. Jacob is seeking to make peace with his brother. He, He knew that Esau had something against him and justifiably so. And so he humbly approaches him and he acknowledges what he had ignored previously. He acknowledged the fact that his older brother Esau was worthy of honor and respect from his younger brother that he did not receive. He was letting him know that over the past 20 years that he, the Lord had blessed him and he had accumulated great wealth. He had accumulated, uh, he was a man of significant means. And he wasn't saying that to boast. He was saying that to let Esau know that he had everything that he needed and everything that he wanted. And he didn't need or want anything from Esau. Esau would have looked at Jacob and think, what's he going to take from me this time? But Jacob didn't need anything. And he wanted Esau to know that. Except, of course, his forgiveness. He needed and wanted his, his forgiveness for his deception and the hurt that he had caused in the past. And unfortunately, the messengers returned. And they returned with a message that was rather ominous. They said, we came to your brother Esau. And he's coming to meet you. And there are 400 men with him. And it appears as though either... Esau had already heard and was on his way. Or he left shortly thereafter the messengers had left. But either way, he's coming. And the messengers tell Jacob, or doesn't tell uh, Jacob what Esau was intending to do. Was he going to wipe them all out? Was he going to simply... Kill Jacob and leave everybody else alive? Was he going to leave everybody alive and take all their stuff? Or was Esau simply making him sweat? We don't know. And while we don't, and while we know actually, because we read ahead and we see in Genesis 33 how Esau responds, Jacob didn't know. Jacob has no idea. And the ambiguity of the circumstances and the guilt from his sin caused Jacob to be greatly afraid and distressed, as you can imagine. His faith was growing, but it was still a work in progress. And rather than keep his eyes on the Lord and and keep his trust in the Lord, he, and, and, and rather than rest in the angels that he had just seen, and rather than rest in the promises of God and the protection that he had been offered, he immediately reverts back and begins to plan again. Verse 7, it says, He divided the people who were with him and the flocks and herds and camels into two camps, thinking if Esau comes to the camp and attacks it, then, then the camp will, that is left will escape. And so his fear, in reality, his fear caused him to weaken rather than strengthen his position. And he had divided himself into two camps. So rather than 
keep his eyes on God and rest in the fact that there were two camps, a physical one and a spiritual one. He splits it into his into two. He allows the circumstances and the fear and the doubt to split his camp, which left them less fortified and more vulnerable. But we shouldn't be too hard on him. And that's because he's not the only one that struggles with fear and doubt. We all do. In the words of Calvin, our faith is never so strong at every point that we are able to repel wicked doubts and sinful fears as we would wish. And that brings us to the second evidence of Jacob's change. Because while his faith wasn't unshakable, it was growing. He was being sanctified. And we know that because he did something we didn't see him do for 20 years while with Laban. He prays. And again, in the words of Calvin, the Lord willed that his servant should be oppressed with anxiety for a time so that he might be more prayerful. And his prayer shows that he was not so oppressed with fear that his faith was stopped from being victorious. He cast his cares and his troubles on his heavenly And this prayer is a good one. It's a good one. Look at verse 9. He began by calling on the Lord. And he addressed him specifically as God of my father Abraham. God of my father Isaac and the Lord. In other words, he's addressing him in a way that affirmed that he was trusting in and and acknowledging and calling out to his covenant-making, covenant-keeping God. That covenant-keeping, covenant-making God, or covenant-making, covenant-keeping God who had been faithful to him and had been faithful to his father and had been faithful to his grandfather. He also acknowledged the providential circumstances that he found himself in. He acknowledged that he was in the midst of these circumstances because the Lord had commanded him and he had obeyed. So he was there because of the Lord's command and his obedience It was also a reminder to himself that the Lord had promised to fight for him and and to be with him and to prosper him. But it was also a way of imploring the Lord to keep his promise as well. And then in verse 10, he humbly admits that he wasn't worthy of the Lord's abundant and steadfast love and, and his faithfulness. Or any of the good gifts that he had received from the Lord's hand. He admitted he had left with nothing but a stick. And come back with enough to form two camps. And he hadn't done anything to earn it. There was nothing that he had done to merit what he had. The only thing that he had brought to the table was his sin. A sin that desperately needed The grace and mercy of God. Everything the Lord had done and everything that Jacob had been given was a result of mercy and grace. Well, having affirmed what he had needed to affirm and having acknowledged what he needed to acknowledge and having admitted what he needed to admit, he then pled. Verse 11. He he pled for what he thought he needed, which was deliverance. 
The strong and self-reliant, self-sufficient heel grabber was now fearful and vulnerable and dependent upon the Lord to protect him and his family, to keep him and them from being wiped out from Esau, by Esau. So he pled that the Lord would deliver him. And then in verse 12, the basis, he says the basis for that pleading was the promises of God that had been made to him. And brothers and sisters, I think it would be good for us to consider the following words of a few faithful pastors from our past and present as we seek to apply this prayer to ourselves. They were too good not to share. Regarding our circumstances, Donald Gray Barnhouse once said, If God has brought us into our present circumstances, He will bring us out of them. The Lord has often brought His children into trouble, but He has never left them there. But then in the words of Martin Lloyd-Jones, words that we need to heed, he says, Until we truly humble ourselves, forgetting other people and those who are worse than we are, until we see ourselves as we are in the sight of God and confess our sins and commit ourselves into His almighty hands, we have no right to look for peace and happiness. And then finally, concerning prayer, Matthew Henry once wrote, The best we can say to God in prayer is what He has said to us. God's promises, as they are the surest guide of our desires in prayer and furnish us with the best petitions, so they are the firmest ground for our hopes and furnish us with the best pleas. And the southern version of that is short and sweet. Ligon Duncan said, our prayers ought to be chock full of Scripture. And Richard Phillips adds to that. He says, when we fill our prayers with such promises, we gain confidence and peace. And as George Mueller once said, the most important part of prayer is the 15 minutes after we've said amen. And what takes place from verses 13 to 21 reminds us that while Jacob had come a long way, he was still a work in progress, because what did Jacob do immediately after prayer? Within those first 15 minutes, maybe, we don't know, but right after that prayer, we're told that he sought to deliver himself. He had just prayed for the Lord to deliver him, and he steps in again and says, I'm going to deliver myself. And I'm not going to expound on this plan. I think our time would better be would be better spent looking at the wrestling match about to take place. So let me just summarize this by saying Jacob sought to pacify and appease his brother through gifts. And he gave him 550 total animals. But what Jacob really needed to do, the problem here, what Jacob really needed to do was not pacify or appease Esau with gifts. He needed to confess his sin, repent of his sin, and ask for Esau to forgive him. Face to face. Jacob had come a long way. But he was still not in the place that the Lord wanted him to be in. Jacob was still self-reliant. Rather than being reliant upon the Lord. And, and Jacob was... I mean, right after he prayed to the Lord and pled for deliverance. According to the covenant faithfulness of God. He then forgets the Lord and puts him aside and fails to trust him and he puts his trust back in himself or on himself. 
And what he should have done was pray and then quietly and confidently wait for the Lord to answer. And beloved, I think we have to admit, we, I, I know it's tempting sometimes to fall into the trap of treating God like Jacob treated Esau. And seek to pacify and, and appease him in order for him to bless us in return, particularly when we've sinned. But of course, the only appropriate way to treat him is as our loving father who who longs and desires to give good gifts to his children and to flee to him for mercy. And to repent of our sin and to receive the blessings of forgiveness and peace and assurance that are ours in Christ. And of course, having taking our concerns to him in prayer, we should leave them there and not pick them up again. We shouldn't forget the Lord and take matters into our own hands We should pray and then quietly and patiently wait for the Lord to answer. Resting in Him. And that brings us to our second point. We don't know why. Some say He went, it it was um, to pray, but it doesn't doesn't tell us. But but Jacob sent his two wives and and their servants and the children across the Jabbok at a spot that was shallow enough to wade and then he went back and he stayed by himself he remained behind by himself and again we don't know what motivated him but we do know that he was in the perfect spot for what the Lord planned to do Jacob was in a position that was completely out of his control he was in a position where he wouldn't be able to manipulate his way out His plan or a plan would be of no value. His deception would be useless. In other words, because of who he was, he was at the end of himself. And it's here in the darkness of night that a man appears. But it wasn't just a man. Hosea called him an angel. And we know from verse 30 that Jacob himself would come to believe that he had encountered over the course, after, over the course of the night that he was encountering the physical manifestation of God. And because the second person of the Trinity would eventually become flesh and dwell among his creation, many believe the man was the pre-incarnate Christ. And Jacob wrestled with him all night long. And prevailed. But in verse 25, when Moses said that Jacob prevailed, he didn't mean that Jacob defeated God because there was some weakness in God. When he said he prevailed, he meant that God had had mercy on Jacob rather than destroy him on the spot. And he purposely allowed Jacob to struggle with him all night long, but eventually bringing him to a point of submission, both physically and spiritually. God wanted to bring Jacob to a point where he understood the battle was, his battle was not really with Esau. The real battle was between Jacob and the Lord. 
Esau was simply a circumstance through which the, the Lord was working in Jacob's life. The Lord had sought Jacob out and wrestled with him all night and eventually dislocates his hip with a touch of a finger all for the purpose of bringing Jacob to a place of humble reliance upon him. God wanted Jacob to recognize that apart from the Lord, he was nothing. God wanted Jacob to recognize that he wasn't as strong as he thought he was. God wanted Jacob to realize that he wanted, he was more willing to give Esau a bunch of gifts than he was to give himself to the Lord. He wanted him to see that it would only be through weakness, his own weakness, that he would be strong. And all of it was for God's glory and the good of Jacob. And notice in verse 26 that God's goal was achieved. Because when the man said, let me go, for the day has broken, Jacob said no. Jacob wasn't going to let go. He wasn't going to let go until the Lord blessed him. The wrestling had turned into clinging. Jacob was clinging to him in faith. He was clinging to him in hope. He was seeking a blessing that he could not obtain through his own efforts, through his own self-sufficiency, through his own self-reliance. He was seeking, he was desperately holding on to the Lord, seeking a blessing that he could only receive from him. But he would have to own what he had, he would have to own who he was and what he had done before he received it. And that's what happens in verse 27. Therefore the, la- the Lord asked him a question, what's your name? And when he answered Jacob, not only did he acknowledge his own flaws in, in his character, But he also acknowledged and and confessed the guilt for his sins that, again, would require the grace and mercy of, of God to overcome. And in verse 28, the Lord responded. And in doing so, he revealed who he was. He did what only God had the right to do. And like his grandfather before him, God changed Jacob's name. The old man Jacob was gone. The new man, Israel, had come. And this was a dramatic turning point that was extremely significant. It it, it indicated a significant change. He not only had a new identity, verse 29 tells us, he also had a new desire. He wanted to know more about God. And to memorialize this encounter, verses 30 and 31 tell us Jacob named the place, Peniel, because while God had revealed himself there in the darkness, it was the darkness that kept Israel alive. And his limp would be a constant reminder of that encounter and the lessons he'd learned. I asked three questions as we began. What do you believe is your greatest need? 
What do you believe is your greatest weakness? And what sin most confronts you? Now I want to ask a few more questions following up on those. Could the Lord be using the things you struggle with most to bring you to a place of spiritual submission so that you will cling to the Lord Jesus alone and never let him go? Could he be using your various struggles in your relationships with other people and the circumstances that you find yourself in to reveal your true needs, your true needs and your weaknesses and your sins in order to drive you away from yourself and your pride and your self-reliance and your self-sufficiency and drive you to him? Are you willing to acknowledge and own your erroneous needs and your weaknesses and to confess your sins and to repent of your sins and seek to lay hold of Christ? Are you at a place in your life where regardless of whether or not your relational and circumstantial struggles work out. That you will simply trust the Lord and seek to bring Him glory? Are you clinging to Christ alone? I want to close with this. The pre-incarnate Christ remained veiled in darkness... But the light has now come in the true incarnate Christ. And in the words of the hymn writer Helen Lamel, we are able to look into his wonderful face. And when we do, the things of earth grow strangely dim in light of his glorious grace. It was the Lord Jesus who wrestled God the Father in prayer under the cover of darkness while in the Garden of Gethsemane, while he experienced the deep distress of the enemy that awaited him. And the Lord prevailed. Jesus prevailed for us. He submitted himself to the will of the Father. It was the Lord Jesus who wrestled with God on the cross as he was experiencing the deep distress over the Father forsaking him. The Lord prevailed. Jesus prevailed for us. He prevailed because he surrendered his soul into the Father's hands. It was the Lord Jesus who submitted himself to the holy and just and or holy and righteous justice of God, not to pay for his own sin, but to pay for ours. And he prevailed so that we might receive the blessing of salvation. Brothers and sisters, the Lord Jesus prevailed for us in every way. Verse 32 says that the generations refused to eat the sinew of the thigh that is on the hip socket because Christ touched the socket of Jacob's hip and the sinew of the thigh. Fortunately for us, 
We don't look at Jacob's wounded thigh. We look at Christ's wounds in his hands, his feet, and his side. And it is by those wounds that we are healed. Let me encourage you. Lay hold of Jesus. And do not let him go. And the more you, the more you cling to him. The more you cling to him. The more you will come to realize. That he is clinging to you. He holds you fast. And he will never let you go. Let's pray. Well, Father, by your spirit and grace, would you enable us to receive the word with faith and love and lay it up in our hearts and practice it in our lives for your glory, for our good, in the sake of Christ and his church, I pray. Amen.